Welcome to Voir Dire, conversations from the Criminal Justice Policy Program at Harvard Law School. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm going to be talking to Rasan Hall, who's the director of the ACLU of Massachusetts' What a Difference a DA Makes campaign. We're going to be talking about the differences that DAs make. I love this conversation because we covered many different aspects of progressive prosecution and the importance of engaging with who our prosecutors actually are. And I just think Rasan Hall has a great brain on these things and as an incredibly powerful advocate. So here's our conversation. All right. Well, then I will kick it off. Um, and I wanted to start sort of with your personal background before we got into the project itself, because mm-hmm. you did work in the DA's office at some point. Yep. Um, and so I was just curious what made you want to go be a district attorney or an assistant district attorney and then how did you end up on the other side trying to reform district attorney's offices? Um, when I was in law school I, I really didn't have a good sense of why I was there other than it was the next step in education for me. Uh, but I was also in law school at the time of the O.J. Simpson trial and I, and I had I had uh, a commitment and interest for uh, civil rights and racial justice issues, uh, but hadn't been able to figure out how that would apply within the context of this legal education that I was receiving. Uh, but through the relationships that I made with classmates that were um, uh, that I was close to, uh, through some of the information that I was being introduced to uh, in my classes and witnessing what happened in the O.J. Simpson trial and, and, and seeing Johnny Cochran uh, as a, uh, a master of the courtroom, I felt like that's what I want to do. I want to be him. And so from that point forward, and that was you know the middle of my... Um, uh, my f- my first year of law school, I then decided that I was going to take as many criminal law, criminal procedure courses, um, and civil rights related courses as I possibly could. And my first job out of law school was the Dade County Public Defender's Office down in Florida. But for family reasons, I decided to return uh, to Boston, and uh, the district attorney uh, at the time was Ralph Martin, who was uh, a friend of my father's and heard that I was back in town and you know, reached out to my father and asked if uh, he thought that I would be interested in working for the DA's office. And my dad, knowing me and my worldview and politics, uh, said he probably won't be interested, but, <laughs> but he needs a job, so I'm going to send him to you. And so, um, so I went and I met uh, with Ralph Martin, and I talked about the concerns that I had, uh, the reservation uh, of being a black man in a position to send other black men to jail. And and Ralph acknowledged that, having been a federal prosecutor himself uh, as, as a uh, African-American man and, uh, and being the district attorney. Uh, but the thing that he said that, you know, I, I realized but didn't really grapple with Uh, until that moment was that the people who are the victims of crimes, the people whose communities are beset by crime, uh, deserve to have someone in the courtroom that represents their interests, that looks like them, that can relate to them. 
and you know, and that and that set with me, and uh, that opened me up to the process uh, or the prospect of being uh, a, a prosecutor. And so uh, then I had a meeting with the uh, then chief of the district courts, Andrea Cabral, who went on to be the become the sheriff of Suffolk County and then the executive uh, uh, secretary of the executive office of public safety. And, you know, in meeting with her, she, one of her questions to me was, why do you want to do this job? And, and I told her, I don't really, but my dad told me to come (laughs) and, you know, and she was gobsmacked. She, um, you know, to this day, I recall like her mouth being agape. And, um, and she remembers the story as well, but, and she has since told me that that was one of the reasons, uh, she hired me is, um, not that I was that cavalier and felt like I didn't have to, um, uh, beg and plead for this job, but that the perspective that I brought to the work after having been a, a, a public defender or worked in a public defender's office and, um, having these concerns around, um, the, the role that I would play specifically as a black man, uh, that that was a perspective that was was needed in the office. And so that's how uh, I, I got into the work. My first day in the office was uh, a moment of culture shock because here I am in, a, in the basement of a courthouse in the district attorney's office uh, with a bunch of police officers walking around with guns and holsters on their, you know, on their belts um, or guns holstered uh, around their waist to drinking coffee and eating donuts. Very stereotypical. Uh, and I said to myself, oh, my God, I am in the belly of the beast. Uh, but, you know, from that point, I developed relationships with my colleagues, with uh, members of the court and with uh, police officers and gained a, a, a new perspective and understanding of uh, how uh, they do their work, how they appro- approach their work. And, and those ex- experiences, the three years in district court, the five years in superior court, inform uh, my perspective in the way that I uh, do the work that I do now. Do you think that uh, do you think that that played out the way that that your background and perspective was able to make you were able to make an impact in the way that you wanted to and that they wanted to you too when you arrived? I think so. Um, I, I recognized early on that I had a lot to learn uh, about prosecuting cases. I had a lot to learn uh, about. Uh, that offices and law enforcement in general's uh, approach to public safety. And I had a lot to learn about uh, relationship building. And through that process of watching people navigate the office and what the um, implicit motivations were um, uh, and incentives were for, for the work, uh, I, I felt like I could bring some of myself and perspective to the job and and have empathy and compassion and look to give uh, people a break, uh, but that I was also heavily influenced by uh, the culture of that environment, uh, the, the, the way that people talked about uh, individuals who were accused of crimes or folks who were identified as impact players, uh, that there was a level of crime and violence, uh, particularly in uh, lower-income communities of color, uh, and that certain individuals were identified as the source of the crime and uh, the violence. And to the extent that that's 
true that they are the ones that are being arrested for the crime. It it uh, was devoid of any critical analysis of the systems and the structural issues uh, that led to people, one, being in positions where they are involved in criminal activity or acts of violence and the trauma uh, that they have experienced, but it also, um, uh, you know, was uh, devoid of any critical analysis about how public safety can truly be uh, achieved, and it does not always rely on uh, the system of incarceration. And so I, I felt like at the time I was a very reasonable prosecutor. I established good relationships with uh, the defense bar. There were very uh, few instances that I can recall where defense counsel felt I was being unreasonable. Um, but at the same time, uh, being a reasonable person in an unreasonable system isn't necessarily something to celebrate either. Yeah. The, the reason why I sort of get us down this track is um, there's a big pitch, I'm, I'm sure you're aware, on lost campuses right now to take people who sort of would end up as public defenders and try to convince them to go be prosecutors. Uh, and so I'm just sort of curious, you, you seem to have actually lived that experience, if that's something that you would recommend um, to, to someone who is interested in racial justice, civil rights, as they intersect in the criminal legal system. Is that advice you would give to someone graduating from school? Uh, yes. I mean, I, I think it is, it is appropriate for people of good conscience and uh, people with a commitment to racial justice to... Uh, be uh, a part of the system with the intention of trying to change the system. Um, you know, there are certainly some people that want to go be prosecutors so that they can get the experience to further a political career or so that they can understand how the entity works so that they can be better informed as defense attorneys uh, or have good relationships within the uh, DA's office so that they can leverage that uh, as defense attorneys. Um, but I think that misses an opportunity to dramatically transform uh, uh, the, the system and the role of prosecutors. I mean, coming from the perspective of, of prison and police abolition, uh, similarly, prosecution uh, needs to cede its power. Um, there, there is entirely too much power in the hands of, of of prosecutors, and simply working there and trying to be a good person within that system isn't going to dismantle uh, that that system. That said, I'd rather have people in the system that are trying to uh, bring a positive lens or a transformative or restorative lens to the work than people who are hell bent on taking a tough on crime uh, approach to the work and not bringing any level of analysis uh, to the reasons why certain communities are over-policed and over-incarcerated the way that they are. Okay, so that brings me to sort of now working outside the system to try to change it. So why don't you tell me just very high level what the What a Difference a DA campaign, sorry, What a Difference a DA makes campaign is, and then we can get into the nitty-gritty of what the differences are. Sure. Um, you know, the What a Difference a DA Makes campaign is a, a public education campaign focused on increasing uh, community engagement uh, to really raise awareness about the role, the power, and the influence of, of district attorneys uh, with the goal of um, having the public 
um, hold prosecutors accountable in ways that they have not been held accountable uh, before so that they would then either elect uh, reform uh, reformist or progressive reform-minded prosecutors or people who are going to work at dismantling and the system or reducing uh, the amount of, uh, of power. So it's not just about getting people to go out and vote for uh, the progressive candidate who's going to tinker around the edges, but um, uh, identifying uh, candidates who are going to s substantially change how prosecution happens and to the extent that those candidates don't get elected, then for the, the public to hold uh, the candidates who do get elected, hold them accountable to a higher standard and a higher set of demands that move us uh, closer uh, to dramatically changing the way prosecution happens. Okay. So my thought for the rest of this conversation is to kind of split between the, the, the actual content of the public education campaign of mm -hmm. like what are the differences, but then also to be kind of to get a little meta and talk about the campaign itself and, and that process. So starting with that sort of first area, and we can sort of structure this in, in a way that you think makes sense, but um, what are the differences that, a, that a, a DA makes? Like what are the broad areas where you think that they're exercising power that, that the public doesn't really understand? I think every aspect uh, of, of uh, criminal prosecution is influenced by the district attorney from the way policing happens uh, to uh, bail and arraignments to charging decisions um, to the exchange of information uh, through the discovery process, um, appeals that are pursued, uh, sentences that are recommended, and um, um, uh, appearances at probation hearings, parole hearings, and um, the influence within, uh, within the legislature around criminal law reform. And so at every one of those stages, district attorneys have some level of power control or influence um, that dramatically affect the trajectory of an individual's life, uh, but also uh, have an impact on the, the shape and size uh, of the system and the number of people who are within the system. Okay, so maybe taking the, the life cycle of a case, mm -hmm. um, why don't you walk us through each sort of point in the life cycle of a case where the prosecutor's office's policies would make a difference? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, beginning with, with policing, the way that policing happens, uh, although district attorneys don't set police department policies, they influence those policies. When I was in the DA's office, uh, there was a... Uh, a um, Supreme Court precedent that became critical of uh, the way show-up identifications or photo arrays were handled. Um, historically, what had been done is that the police officer or detective would show up uh, with an array that included um, a number of photos. And the problem with that was that individuals then began to compare one individual against the other 
people in the array, but also that police could tip the scale by having uh, the target of the investigation and have other individuals that are somewhat similar but distinct enough that the individual who is the target stands out. And so, um, you know, the, the case law suggested that the array should be shown one at a time and that there was some prefatory language uh, that needed to be used to inform the witness how the process was going to happen and, and what they uh, would do and what the officer's conduct should be uh, during that. And so, uh, at the time that I was in the office, that was something that the first assistant DA was involved in helping the Boston Police Department develop its policy around uh, photo arrays and how the police should do that. So that's one very direct and explicit way that they can influence the way that uh, policing happens. But another way that it can happen uh, is through the either the charging decisions or the or the declination uh, decisions, cases that a DA's office will refuse uh, to prosecute. So for instance, uh, many people will say that uh, the, the opioid crisis is a public health issue. Uh, yet and still, we have law enforcement officials who are still trying to arrest and prosecute our way out of this problem, as opposed to identifying services for people who are suffering with substance use disorder. If a prosecutor's office says, we refuse to prosecute simple possession drug cases, the police are going to at some point get tired of making those arrests when people who are charged with those offenses ultimately end up having those offenses dismissed. The DA's office is sending a message that that is a waste of public resource to arrest people for simple possessions of drugs because those people are suffering with a disease. Um, and so by that kind of implicit action um, or, or by that action, the DA's office is sending an implicit signal to the police department uh, that uh, that will influence the way the, that policing happens. You know, and there's always, you know, um, uh, uh, issues around police accountability. If there are officers who judges have found uh, to not be credible, uh, and then if a district attorney's office then develops a list of all of the officers who have found not to be credible uh, in cases and then re-examine uh, any of the cases that those officers have been the uh, the lead affiant in a, in a search warrant or in a an application for a complaint uh, or the lead investigator on a case and making that information public uh, or available to de the defense bar or um, addressing that within within the DA's office, that's going to make the police do their job. So then if that's policing, what about charging? Uh, for uh, the district attorney's office is oftentimes um, uh, attributed with um, charging decisions and, and so for um, more serious cases that are handled in superior court, uh, those cases come through the grand jury uh, process where it is the uh, prosecutor working with uh, the lead investigators and witnesses to present evidence before a grand jury. But through that process, um, the DA's office uh, is deciding what charges to bring and who to bring those charges um, against. And so they are in full control uh, of that. And so that's one way that district attorney's offices have some influence on charging decisions. The other way is, even though it is after the fact of someone having been charged at the arraignment, uh, prosecutors can refuse to arraign cases uh, or dismiss cases at the uh, at the arraignment um, as a, an indicator of 
um, what they feel are the priorities, prosecution priorities. So that's, um, you know, looking at the power that they have in, in charging decisions. So after charging, it seems like you'd end up with bail. What, what is the prosecutor's role there? Uh, with with bail, even though the judge is the person that makes the bail decision, uh, rarely in my experience as a prosecutor, and not to say that it doesn't happen, uh, but it is rare that a judge will set a bail without the prosecution having first moved uh, for bail or making a request uh, for bail. And, and, and again, even though it's the judge that makes the decision, the prosecutor is the one that is uh, defining the landscape or the range. Um, and not that the judge is bound by that, but uh, it, it frames the conversation of what an appropriate bail uh, is. You know, I, re- I recall my early experiences as a prosecutor um, being asked to make an arraignment when I just started and looking to my supervisor to tell me what is uh, a, a bail amount that I should request, not having been trained on it, not having been giving a worksheet or anything that determines what an appropriate bail amount would be. And the supervisor said, you ask 10 different prosecutors, you'll get 10 different answers. And it just, which seemed so completely uh, arbitrary. And so if somebody is being arraigned on an assault and battery and they have one default on their record, here I am, maybe four to five years out of law school, um, with a person who's had a whole life experience before they met me in that courtroom, and I'm saying $500 bail is an appropriate amount to ensure that this person comes back to court, or because I'm scared that I don't want to mess up, and I heard somebody before me ask for a $5,000 bail, I then request a $5,000 bail when it's probably not even appropriate that that person have a cash bail uh, placed on them. But you know, but within that the judge is going to make a decision most likely within that range that I as the prosecutor am, am defining. And um, if, if I am then moving for bail that is communicating to the court that we believe as the prosecutor that this case is significant and that there is a risk of flight for this individual and between the charging decisions and the bail amount that is set, uh, that creates leverage that the prosecutors have then to try to resolve the case. And people are more likely uh, to resolve a case by way of guilty plea if they are held on bail as opposed to individuals who are out and not uh, detained. And so charging people with uh, Uh, cases that carry significant sentences like mandatory minimum offenses um, or uh, or requesting a high bail uh, puts more power in the hands of of prosecutors to to resolve in an expedient fashion an overwhelming number of cases that probably shouldn't be there uh, in the first uh, place. And and given the disruptive nature uh, of of bail in that people who are held on bail sometimes lose their jobs, lose their housing, can lose custody of their children, uh, it incentivizes people to resolve the cases sooner rather than later, um, especially when they're held on bail. And so that's a very powerful tool uh, that prosecutors uh, have that they can try to leverage. So I kind of want to fast forward a little bit. You, you just touched on plea negotiations, and obviously that's a place where prosecutorial discretion is, is sort of obvious and very powerful. And I guess I would lump into that sentencing recommendations. One thing you've talked about, which I think is, is um, s- subtle, 
uh, or more subtle and or maybe the word is less obvious is the prosecutor's role in sort of legislative reform and lobbying and sort of as a law enforcement figure in the community. Can you talk a little bit about that, the, the importance of the district attorney in, in that context? Sure. Um, uh, prosecutors have historically been a stumbling block to progressive evidence-based criminal law reform. Uh, here in Massachusetts, we have been advocating for repeal of mandatory minimums. It is a failed relic of a outdated war on drugs. Uh, but yet and still, prosecutors, district attorneys specifically, have consistently uh, opposed those reforms. They have showed up to legislative hearings. Uh, they have had individual conversations with legislators uh, to tell them that repealing mandatory minimums is not safe and an unwise decision. And that's problematic because to the extent that mandatory minimums serve as a deterrent, they're not doing a very good job. You look at the opioid crisis and you see the number of people who have died of overdoses. Having mandatory minimums has not prevented that in the least bit and has probably even exacerbated it because we have recent studies that show that people who are released from prison uh, who suffer with opioid addiction are 120 times more likely to die of an overdose upon release than the rest of the population. That's problematic, and that says to me that mandatory minimums do not work. Uh, but yet and still, the prosecutors will show up at every legislative session and say we cannot repeal mandatory minimums um, because it subjects us to too much danger. Um, they have stood in the way of uh, raising the age of juvenile jurisdiction uh, when there is ample research about and brain science uh, research that shows that uh, the juvenile brain does not finish developing until 24, 25, and that there are also studies that show that uh, young people in that 18 to 24-year-old cohort uh, have much better outcomes when they are in an age-appropriate, developmentally appropriate setting um, because they are not exposed to older individuals who have deeper criminal histories. Uh, and then just the dynamic and the, uh, the rebelliousness of youth, um, that there are fewer conflicts because they're not trying to prove themselves um, to, to, to anyone. But yet and still, prosecutors have um, uh, blocked those types of reforms and done it from a place of leveraging and tapping into the fear that the public has by saying, if we don't prosecute these 18 and 19 year olds as adult, the adults, they'll just get a slap on the wrist and they'll be worse off and they'll continue to go out and wreak havoc when in fact studies show just the opposite. Yeah. So this sort of brings me to, uh, obviously you can't, um, you know, endorse or advocate specific candidates. But when you are looking for, or you're, you're telling folks, you know, d district attorneys are important, you should vote. The next question seems, the obvious next question is, okay, so what should I be looking for in a district attorney? Do you have like a scorecard in mind or a, a, a rubric? Um, we, we have a rubric uh, that prioritizes the 
the things that we believe are the most important changes within the system, and that is uh, a commitment to racial justice, uh, a dedication and policy geared towards uh, reducing over-incarceration, um, uh, repealing or eliminating uh, cash bail, and repealing mandatory minimums, and data uh, transparency and availability. Those are cornerstones of, uh, of uh, our campaign, the, the, the policy positions that candidates can take that would move um, our system in in the better direction. I mean, it, you know, again, kind of drawing from uh, the prison abolitionist community, uh, advocacy community, we don't want to build up systems that we will later have to tear down. And so, it, you know, let's not make more programs that will perpetuate the incarceration of people, even if it just looks different, right? And so instead of holding people on bail, let's put them on ankle bracelets out in the community. Well, that's still a system of monitoring and surveillance and oppression uh, that is holding people back. And so let's not make that the suggestion as the interim step. Um, sometimes those are the things that become the necessary evils, but when we are creating those new systems, let's be sure that we are not exacerbating existing problems like racial disparity. So, for instance, uh, the move to eliminate cash bail has been accompanied by a push to introduce risk assessment tools. Risk assessment tools in and of themselves are not problematic, but what's problematic is the criminogenic factors that are used to develop the algorithms that the risk assessment tools use uh, disproportionately rely on uh, or are informed by um, uh, factors that show up in the lives of black and brown people more so than white people. And so absent any type of transparency around how the algorithms are being developed and monitoring for uh, racial disparities, uh, those new tools that are designed to help alleviate what we have previously identified as the problem uh, become problematic themselves. You mentioned prioritizing racial justice in the system and you know addressing head-on discrimination within the system. And I was struck, you know, I was on your website. I've, I've seen the survey that you guys put together. Ending racial discrimination in the criminal legal system is important to a lot of people in Massachusetts. But it seems like, and, and it's like an over, it's like 70-something percent, right? Mm -hmm. It seems like if people cared as much as that number would suggest, like things would look a lot different right now than they do. So I'm wondering if you have a, a sense of what where that disconnect is. It, it sounds like... It sounds like people doing lip service to it, but not quite, the rubber is not hitting the road, you know? Right. I, I think, I, I, and I say this a lot, um, and I have yet to hear it repeated, so maybe I'm not saying it enough, <laughs> but I say that we here in Massachusetts suffer from liberal exceptionalism. We think that we get it right because we were the first state to legalize same-sex marriage, because we have historically voted democratically uh, in presidential elections. So therefore, we are liberals, we are progressives, we're not like the rest of the country. But yet and still, the disparities in incarceration, even though we have the lowest or one of the lowest incarceration rates in the country, we have gross racial disparities that outpace the national 
uh, racial disparities in incarceration. Uh, I think the disconnect is because of, in part, that liberal exceptionalism that we believe that we don't have those types of problems here, um, but also that, um, you know, uh, good, well-intentioned white folks are not impacted the same way uh, by this system. And so the over-policing that happens in communities of color, uh, the, the, the disparities in bail, uh, that exists, the disparities in sentencing uh, that exist don't visit the doors of um, um, of white people in in the ways that it does um, you know, communities of color, specifically black and brown people. So it's it's nice to talk about these lofty aspirational ideals of racial justice, um, but the 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 acute pain of having your child stopped or being yourself stopped and racially profiled or uh, being given a sentence that is uh, disproportionately out of line with what the average uh, sentence uh, for a very similar crime uh, of that of white people. Um, uh, The absence of that, um, I think, informs the the lack of passion and conviction uh, to really change things. People know that these disparities exist and they know that they're wrong, but I also believe that because those atrocities and oppression are not visited on them directly, there's some sort of implicit or inherent belief that people might not be willing to articulate uh, that the way that those disparities are also a function of uh, people's behavior. In other words, well, the reason that there are that many black and brown people in the system is because that's where the crime actually is. And although it's unfortunate, it's because of societal discrimination, but these individuals are still involved in criminal conduct. And so we have to have some sort of system to hold these people uh, accountable. Um, But, you know, uh, but again, there is a lot of crime that happens in white communities that is not policed and dealt with uh, in the same way that um, that it is in communities of color that drive these disparities. And so I think that is a place where some of that disconnect exists. So Bringing that back to, to a district attorney's election or platform, because it's something that the, the you know, many voters don't have a real, like, don't engage with the criminal legal system, I worry that, like, every, every candidate for district attorney could have on their platform, you know, eliminating or addressing racial discrimination or disparity in the system, and the actual steps to achieve that could be dramatically different depending mm-hmm. on who gets elected. And so I don't know what the question is there. Actually, I just I wonder like how um, you know, do you do you want to create a like scorecard or rubric that that has sort of like something that holds people to account more than just saying like I believe in in racial equality in the system because it's very easy to say that in Massachusetts. Yeah, I mean, I would love to say you know, we expect you to reduce the racial disparities by 50% in your mm. first term as district attorney, right? I, and, and I think that's something that's not unreasonable. Even if it can't be achieved, there should be, uh, each candidate should be willing to move towards that goal. And what that includes is, well, let's start collecting data. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's understand who we are prosecuting. And for as much as 
district attorneys say, you know, we're not responsible for these racial disparities. We just get what society leaves on our doorsteps. Um, you know, there is an obligation, I believe, to evaluate and interrogate what those offices are doing and what are the inflection points where those disparities get exacerbated. Because that is a true statement that they do get what society leaves on their doorsteps, the, the, the dysfunction in, um, in, in individual homes, the disparity in resources and funding and educational disparities and the trauma uh, that exists in communities of color and particularly poor communities of color. That influences who, gets, who shows up. Uh, in in court, uh, separate and apart from the way that policing happens. Uh, but then, you know, what are the bail requests that are made for black people versus white people? What are the sentences uh, that are recommended for Latinx people versus white people? And, you know, and are there prosecutors in the office that have greater disparities than others? And then are there steps that are implemented? Are there performance improvement plans that get developed when a particular prosecutor is disproportionately making sentencing recommendations that have higher um, incarceration rates or higher or lengthier sentences uh, for people of color than they do for white people? And are there ways for them to take into account because somebody is from a particular community and has had fewer opportunities, should there be a different approach to making sentencing recommendations? Um, and so I think it's important for them to, one, have an acknowledgement that they do have a role. Um, in in the racial disparities that that exist, but then two that they make a commitment to addressing it, and not just with lip service by saying we're committed to to racial justice and eliminating disparities. I think part of it is who you hire and who you bring uh, into the office, but that in and of itself is not a panacea because the way that white supremacy works is you get black folks that are just as problematic as you know white people uh, who are prosecuting these cases. So um, uh, I. I I think it's important for there to be a commitment, but I think it's uh, also important for there to be a level of accountability. And that's one of the things that uh, with this campaign after November 6th that doesn't end, this uh, network of organizations that we've brought together to do this work will then transform into a prosecutor accountability coalition. Great. That was going to be where I wanted to take this next. It's like, okay, so it's this seems like it's a, a sort of drumming up people's engagement to hold people accountable through elections. So how do you hold people accountable after the election? We've got them on record, right? They've filled out our candidate surveys. They showed up at debates and spoken. They've given quotes to the press. They've got information on their website. All of the things that they say they are going to do are going to be the things that we are going to hold them accountable to. All of the commitments that they made on the campaign trail, those are the things that we are going to be showing up at their doors, asking for meetings, and looking to hold them accountable for. And the same... Um, uh, effort that we have put into raising awareness and generating press around what district attorneys um, do and why this election is, is so important is going to be the same level of energy that we are going to commit to making sure the public knows uh, what the um, uh, DA's offices have and have not been doing um, and also generating press around that. We will issue a report card um, probably in December or January that will serve as the route, the, the, the baseline uh, for how these candidates, then district attorneys, will be evaluated over the next um, four years. Um, you know, we'll continue to do our court watch program uh, with the Massachusetts Bail Fund to observe 
are the things that they said about bail, are they actually doing that? Because there have been several folks who are the DA who said we're not going to ask for cash bail in these certain types of offenses, but the Mass Bail Fund has information, some of our court watchers have information that show that they are asking for bail in low-level nonviolent cases. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that's, I think that's uh, what needs to happen, and that's what we commit to doing. This is sort of jumping around now, but I just, like, I've, I feel like I want your opinion on a lot of things. Sure. Um, what do you think is the most radical thing that whoever gets elected, uh, you know, in the various counties, but let's just, like, say Suffolk County, what do you think is the most radical thing that a prosecutor could do to, like, meaningfully improve the criminal legal system? Stop prosecuting cases. Right, I think to develop a list of charges that say we're not going to prosecute these charges. Let's not use this system as a means to address mental health issues. Let's not use this system to as a means to address people's trauma. Let's use the civil asset forfeiture funds that we get and rededicate 100% of the civil asset forfeiture funds that we take only after a guilty conviction, because that's another area where mm. there's a lot of, that's a whole other podcast. Um, um, but instead of using just the minimum 10%, let's use 100% of those civil asset forfeiture funds to direct in community-based crime prevention alternatives. Um, and so the people that are being arrested with simple for simple possession of drugs, we're not arraigning those cases and we're going to make recommendations to treatment programs. For the people who are charged with trespassing, we're not going to arraign those cases. Now, granted, there are people whose lives are disrupted because there's a bunch of kids hanging out on their stoop and they can't get up to their to their apartment because these kids, but there's got to be a better way that it does not require policing and incarceration and involvement in this system to address those community-based concerns. Introducing more robust and comprehensive restorative justice processes. So because a lot of times people are dealing with trauma themselves and that's why they act out in in uh, in, in those ways and are brought into um, the, the system. But if there is a way for people to recognize the impact that their harm has had on others, it brings a different level of accountability that goes beyond just punishment. It sounds like what you're describing is also um, people being influenced by the system that they're in, right? It, it's really hard to dismiss something when it's been put on your, you know, a file has been put on your desk, right. and it's like, I'm supposed to do something about this, and I'm really just going to dismiss this, right? Like I could, And so I could see how the structures of the office would impact um, the way that people behave and that's where sort of top-down change or like leadership becomes important which all brings me to ask why did you choose to focus on you know sort of the, the person at the top of the office and what do you think is the possibility of sort of like trickle-down reform? Uh, I, I think that it has to be the person at the top of the office because they are the ones who are in charge. They are the ones who set the policy and the direction of the office. Now, and I think that's why it becomes important to consider 
who will be in charge as well, because um, it's one thing to say I am a progressive and I have these reform goals in mind, but not be able to deal with the people who are in uh, the office. There is certainly going to be a level of of loyalty that people have to the office and that they realize that this is the person that signs off on my checks, so I need to do what they're saying. Uh, but there is also a way to bring people along in a way that they have that there is buy-in uh, to this grand vision of a new narrative around public safety uh, and to help train people and help them understand that the framework that you have had around violence and crime in communities that many of you don't live in needs to change. Um, and, and here's how we're going to change it. And here are the policies that we're going to introduce. And I encourage you to come along with me. But if you don't, we're going to find the people who are willing to go on this journey with us. Um, and, and that's why this position of leadership uh, is, is so important. And the level of accountability, and that's what the spirit behind this campaign is, is that people rec need to recognize that the district attorney answers to the people, not just the voters, but the people, because the residents of these counties have as much say um, because even though they might not be able to vote, they can raise awareness. They can go to the press. They can talk to their uh, friends and family members who do have a vote. Um, so uh, the residents of the county, uh, whether they're voters or not, uh, that is who the district attorneys are answerable to. And when people realize that, um, uh, and when the district attorney realizes that, uh, that there's a higher level of accountability, and that's why we focused on this position. Um, I'm just curious, did you ever think about running for DA? I did. And what was that? You know, this doesn't, if you don't want to include this, we don't have to, but I'm just curious that, like, seems like that would have been, um, I'm surprised that someone might have brought it up to you at some point. <laughs> many, many people have, have brought it up to me. There are people who are still bringing it up to me. And yeah, people who it's are not very, too late. It's actually too uh, late. It but. is too late. Uh, and, then, and there are many people who are disappointed that I did not run. Um, you know, there are a lot of factors that went into why I, I didn't decide uh, or I decided not to run. Um, uh, but I, I, I do feel that the work that I'm doing now uh, is just as important, if not more important, um, than, um, than holding that, that position. I think the, the fact that there are five contested races uh, in Massachusetts, the last time that happened was in 1982 at the beginning of the war on drugs. Now here we are 36 years later uh, after reeling from mass incarceration and gross racial disparities and the public is desiring something new. And I'd like to think that uh, the ACLU both nationally and the ACLU of Massachusetts and our What a Difference a DA Makes campaign has been a significant factor in uh, this new reality where there are five contested races in one year. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Well, I think we'll leave it at that. Thank you so much for the hard work, and I'm excited to see where this ends up. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm excited, too. Thanks for listening. Poddington Bear makes our theme music, and Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins at the Criminal Justice Policy Program make the world go round. Please remember to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get this podcast, and contact us at voirdearpodcast at gmail.com if you have thoughts, questions, or concerns. Take care.